Vermont Untapped, a podcast from the Vermont Folklife Center that explores the state through the voices of its own residents. I'm Mary Wesley. This is the third episode in a series where we'll talk to people around the state about what they're going through and what they're thinking about in 2020. In this episode, we'll meet some traditional artists who are continuing to practice and create throughout the pandemic. The artists you'll meet in this show are part of the latest cohort of the Vermont Folklife Center's Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program. We call it VTAP for short. Now in its 28th year, we established VTAP to support the vitality of Vermont's living cultural heritage. Traditional arts are often perceived as primarily or even exclusively tied to the past, but we see them as living practices, constantly evolving and changing to meet the unfolding needs of the people who care about them. Traditional art draws on the past, but is continually refined and shaped by the needs and perspectives of the present. At the top of the show, you heard Gopal Nirula and his daughter Isika. Isika was singing a traditional Nepali song while Gopal played tabla, a double hand drum. Gopal and Isika are one of the 18 pairs of master artists and apprentices who were accepted into VTAP this year. Today you'll hear from three different pairs, Gopal and Isika studying Nepali music in Essex Junction, Kate and Jude in Marshfield practicing traditional French-Canadian weaving, and Heather and Wolf learning stone carving in Barrie. By providing assistance to a community-acknowledged master of a traditional form and one or more apprentices, VTAP works to establish relationships that foster direct, interpersonal, and often intergenerational learning. The goal is to support the continuation, sustainability, and ongoing relevance of traditional practices in the state. The program focuses on activities rooted in the shared identity of the communities that practice them. That identity might be cultural, regional, tribal, ethnic, occupational, any of the deep connections that define who we are in relation to one another. Traditional forms supported by the program over the years have included Abenaki basketry and dance, Yankee and Franco-American fiddling, Somali banto instrument making, memorial stone carving and berry, Japanese ikebana, Congolese dance, and Tibetan dranyan performance, among hundreds of others. VTAP is supported by the National Endowment for the Arts and donors around the state. Of course, we've all been thrown a major curveball, or several, in 2020. And when we opened up the application process this summer, I'll admit we were a little concerned about whether or not people would have space to continue practicing their art forms amidst the challenges of the pandemic, or find ways to safely work and learn together. We shouldn't have worried. If traditional arts are a way to make meaning in the world and stay connected within community, this might be the time that we need them the most. We don't have space in this episode to present all 15 projects that VTAP is supporting this year. So today we're starting with just three. Let's begin by properly meeting Gopal and Isika. Of course, we're doing all our field work and site visits remotely this year. So these recordings were made in Zoom. My name is Gopal Nirola. Uh, I was born in Bhutan, B-A-T-U-T-A in Bhutan. It is one of the smallest Asian countries. 
And then when I was like eight years old, uh, I left Bhutan with my parents because of the cruel government. And then I stay in Nepal for like 22 years as a refugee. And in 2014, uh, in November 2014, I came to United States, uh, especially in the Vermont. Um, and then like, I love music. Uh, I used to play different kinds of musical instruments when I was in Nepal, uh, like tabla, piano, flute, you know, flute. And then, yeah, I'm very much interested in music. And then, yeah, for my children, I think that uh, I can help them. I can help them to grow their, like, music or stuff like that. When I was in Nepal, when I was in refugee camp, um, uh, we didn't have any kind of, like, net and internet. But uh, when I went to different parts of Nepal, uh, I used to be the teacher in Nepal. I used to teach uh, English, you know. And then from YouTube and from some, some of the social media, uh, I learned, like, flute and tabla. And then I didn't have any teacher for music for me especially i learned myself because of my interest and then i do play tabla it's a two drums i think you you are familiar with that and then i play flute from mouth and nose also i really like nepali music for a lot of reasons and i really like playing so much instruments because i wanna one day i want to go on stage and play those instruments and I really enjoy playing, like, I really enjoy singing and, like, dancing. I love dancing, and I really want to practice the harmonium because I feel like practicing the harmonium could make you, like, get even better at music and stuff. So um, I really enjoy playing the tabla, and I really enjoy dancing. I sing a lot of songs as well. But I have never sang um, a song in the stage, and I'm trying to practice. Maybe, maybe um, after this pandemic, I might go to a stage and sing, and um, maybe by then I might ha- learn the harmonium. We know it's around more than 90,000 Bhutanese Nepali people are in the United States. Uh, though most of them were born in Bhutan, but we live most of our life in Nepal. And then we always think about Nepal. We don't think about Bhutan. You know, we don't like to go back to Bhutan again. But we, we will, every people will go to Nepal and visit there. And the music that we play is related with the Nepali culture. For those who may not be familiar with the resettled Bhutanese Nepali refugee communities in Vermont, families like Gopals have undergone a harrowing series of displacements on their journey to New England. Starting generations ago, people from various ethnic groups in eastern Nepal settled in southern Bhutan. After being targeted by Bhutanese nationalist campaigns against ethnic pluralism, these culturally Nepali groups were forced to flee to refugee camps located in Nepal starting in the 1990s, where they lived for decades. In recent years, many Bhutanese Nepali refugees were resettled in the United States, including in Vermont, where they're creating new lives for themselves and future generations. I help my daughter to learn some of the music, and you know we are in the land of freedom. We don't have any Nepali books and like you know Nepali teachers in the United States. So just to preserve our culture, just to preserve our language. I always uh, request my daughters to like learn our culture, you know, preserve our language. Sometimes when I was like young, 
I would look at him playing the drums and stuff, and I would find it hard. And one day I said to my dad, I'm really interested in playing this. Could you please teach me? And he said, of course. So he kept on teaching me, and he played the flute with his nose, and we put it on Facebook, and a lot of people liked it. So um, I started to get more, like, better at it. So um, he, like, really teach me a lot, and I'm really happy about that. Uh, recently, during the time of pandemic, uh, I do, uh, like, Facebook live show every Saturday. Um, I add different people, different musicians from different countries. Just jumping in here to say that Gopal is reaching a lot of people through his Facebook appearances. His most recent event during the Hindu festival of Tihar got 3.6 thousand views. So like, uh, I think I started uh, in April 16, I think so. Uh, because, you know, this time, most of the people stay home because of the pandemic. They don't have anything to do. And via the music, you know, if we play the kind of some kind of music, if we invite some of the musicians from different parts of country, you know, they can entertain themselves. So that is why I thought that idea and started the Facebook Live. And he's with my uncle. And usually I sing there. And my sister, when I sing, she learned to sing from me, which I was very proud of because I was like, I taught my sibling and she's going to be like me and I'm going to try to teach her more. It's like my dad was my teacher and I'm my sister's teacher and it was all because of my dad. Next, we'll visit Kate and Jude at the Marshfield School of Weaving. Uh, my name is Jude. I grew up in Vermont uh, on a farm in a French Canadian family. I guess the reason that I like wanted to come learn weaving is because I really just like I started sewing, and as I was like coming out as like trans and queer, I was like sewing clothing that like I felt good about, and I really like learned that like just the power of like making textiles and wearing textiles, and like how it can make you feel so amazing and just the story that textiles can tell about you. Jude Poor grew up in Jericho, Vermont, and now lives in Burlington. Jude uses they-their pronouns. They're working with master weaver Kate Smith, who lives in Marshfield, to learn about weaving traditions from French Canada. I uh, came to the school as a student in 1979 to study with Norman Kennedy, and then I became his apprentice in 1982, and for the next 10 years, worked with him directly uh, until the patroness of the school died and the school closed. In 2003, I restarted the Marshfield School of Weaving again in its former location. By the way, Norman Kennedy, who Kate apprenticed with, is a National Heritage Fellow. In the United States, this is the highest public recognition of excellence in the traditional arts. Born in Aberdeen, Scotland, Norman is hugely important to the continuation of Scottish and Gaelic cultural traditions. Through this apprenticeship, Jude is tapping into this lineage of learning between master artist and apprentice. So, um, and we've been going strong ever since then, with more and more students wanting to study this traditional textile production. So, um, I have a 
partiality towards the project that Jude is working on, which is the French Canadian heritage. And we had a deaccession auction and Jude was able to purchase a beautiful old loom. It's very similar to the ones they would have used up uh, in Canada. So we are in the process. We're going to restore that. So the next project will be on that. It's going to be not your traditional like wool striped plaid shawl. It's going to have their voice in it. So that's exciting. It's still a developing idea. I think, um, yeah, I definitely really love the comfortingness of a shawl and just the way that it wraps you. And I'm not sure how yet, but I would love to do like a a representation of like the comfortability of like wearing clothing that um, is like gender affirming, um, which is still developing. I'm not sure how I'll tell that story yet. We're, we're also planning another project, um, which do you want to hear about? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, this is one that I've put a little more thought into. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think about it a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to weave a linen piece, um, and I'm going to take apart my childhood rosary, and I'm going to weave the beads into the fabric. Um, in a like with on the warp so it'll be like beads that go down and then I'm gonna make a skirt out of it that like so the beads go down <laughs> your leg it's a little scampy but <laughs> but I I don't know that is something that I've thought about a lot and just like the story of like to weave those beads in of like beads that I used to pray on to like not be who I am and then like to wear them as like who I am so that's a project that I'm really excited about. My family came down from Quebec to work in the mills. And do you know Lakeside in Burlington? The neighborhood, yes, yeah. So that was like the French Miller neighborhood and um, pretty much most of my family grew up there. Um, I did not though, Uh, but yeah, so I just grew up hearing stories about like how they would all get together and play music. And yeah, I had to learn my prayers in French and um, it was spoken around me at like gatherings and um, we'd go to Quebec a lot and visit. Yeah, and my whole family just makes like, they're all like doers. Like my grandma Hebert was a chair weaver and wove the reed. Well, like Rush or Kane or- Yeah, yeah, Kane, yeah. yeah. And my papa and mama are like, they do stuff with like fur and they make clothing out of fur and rabbit farm. And so there was always like this, like these skills that they had brought down from Quebec. And so I kind of wanted to do the same thing. I'm resonating with it. And I think it's so exciting to take these objects that had, uh, you know, a specific story that was not very positive and transform it into something that makes a statement. I mean, it's very moving. I come from a traditional background and my fabric business is all about historic uh, reproductions. So it's interesting to help Jude find their way into, you know, the designs that we're gonna use won't be bound to the rules that overshot has to be for a traditional bed cover. We'll maybe make it into a shawl. So that I'm finding very exciting. 
that uh, there's a whole lot of rules that we're going to maybe intend to push the boundaries of. So, yeah. Stay tuned. The last team we'll hear from is Heather and Wolf, who are doing their work in the granite capital of the world. Barry, Vermont is internationally known for its high-quality stone and for its long tradition of stone carving, largely established by European immigrants to the area in the 1800s. Barry granite is still used today for building stone, monuments, memorial grave markers, and more. I'm Heather Milne-Ritchie. I was born and raised in Barry, Vermont. I'm a granite carver by trade and a multimedia artist, and I've been producing art um, in many fashions for 25, 30 years, but I've been in the memorial granite industry working professionally for 20. All right. I, my name is Wolf Whitney, and I am a wood carver, and also I'm now starting my apprenticeship under Heather for stone carving. I was born in Barbados, the beautiful island of Barbados, um, moved to America seven years ago, and after leaving the army, um, I decided art was the way I wanted to go. So I moved here to Vermont and I'm glad I made that choice. It was a great opportunity. I met with Heather and it's, we just hit the ground running. I started carving granite in Barrie under George Kurjanowicz through the Vermont Folklife Center Apprenticeship Program in 1999. And my apprenticeship was, um, four months long and George hired me right afterwards to assist him in his studio because he saw that I had gained enough skill to work on the industry jobs um, side by side with him and help him grow his business. I own my own business so I basically get stones that are already designed, already commissioned. Sometimes I get to do my own drawings, a lot of times I don't. And they give me all the paperwork and they deliver the stone and I do my carving in it. And then they take it away and it gets washed and boxed and put on a truck and sent to a cemetery. It's something that you have to be specially trained for. And the past five years, I've wanted to take on an apprentice to share what I know because there's very few of us in Barry that do this craft. I think there's 15 of us total. It's physically demanding work. It's really hard on your body. It's really loud. It's dusty. Um, and and it hurts sometimes. It's steel on stone. And your body is kind of the machine that helps it do that. So it takes a special kind of person who can tolerate the environment and who can, and who can play the game. Um, not just the business side of it, but the actual physical production side of it. And when I met Wolf, I knew that she had the chops to to put the energy into it. And I wasn't really scared of, of hurting her. <laughs> I wasn't scared of ruining her life <laughs> or her hands or her elbows. Um, she's pretty tough. And she I knew when she cold called me that it was like serious business right off the bat yeah. um, that she was really interested in a very sincere way and in, in making a career out of this. I found um, the woodworking program at the Vermont Woodworking School, which is down in Fairfax, Vermont. And I got in there and started building furniture, but I realized furniture is nice, but 
I wanted to do something more with wood, something more artistic. So I started to do some wood carvings and um, my first couple of carvings actually sold pretty well. So I was like, okay, what else can I do? I'm, I'm liking this. I like, I like this medium, but I felt like I was missing something. I felt wood, wood is nice, but it doesn't stand the test of time. And looking at her portfolio of, um, work that she made, not just in wood, but in plaster and clay, like she had the eye for the reductive method of sculpture already. I knew that that was going to make my job training her so much easier because she could already see, you don't have to flip your brain. She, you know, she didn't have to change the way she was thinking about making things. Most people just want to put things on yeah and we take things away so, I don't know I believe in destroying things when I art, when I so. saw that I was like okay this is this is really feeding the fire this yeah. is making things um just flow so I am a practicing pagan and within paganism it's all about earth materials and creating from the earth so stone just fit right in there obviously but within my religion, it's just a very big thing to use your hands. It's a way to honor your gods. It's so using your hands is seen as something that is just, you're putting a part of yourself into this piece of work and it's an honor to do it. So with Bari being Bari, I mean, granite capital of the, the world. Of the world yeah, it's the culture here. It's so... I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like I find myself at a loss for words with it because you go down downtown Barry and everyone's just so proud of the art that is there. Even be- you know before I got into it, they were there was always the regard that that to be a carver, to be working in the industry, if you had dust on your boots, people didn't look down on you. They actually said thank you. We send out stuff that goes to cemeteries everywhere in the oh, United yeah. States. And we're part of a process for people that that helps them heal. We play an important role in our um, immediate community, but we also play a, a large role in the community of the world at large in this circle of life thing. Because um, none of us get out alive. I am currently working on individual projects just mm-hmm. to get like a feel for tools and how different stones work. I started off in um, sandstone mm-hmm. and I'm working my way up through the, the, Density. the densities <laughs> of stone before I get started with granite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was, she's was she been nice to me. She doesn't want to just break my arms off on the first day. No, so, no, yeah, I know so. she's strong, but I figured we'd start with the softer <laughs> stones and work our way up to, um, to granite. It's not taking her long to move through. She's on marble right now. Yeah. Um, we did just finish a, a commission piece that we worked on together. What we're doing is 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 really special because we are two of the only women who are uh, yeah. carving stone so, in Barrie. Um, there's women who work within the granite industry in uh, drafting and offices, uh, drive trucks, they wash stones. Uh, a lot of them are in the family of these little mom and pop shops, um, and some women are saleswomen, um, but there's no other women carvers. And so the opportunity for me to train someone, I knew I wanted to train another woman. I knew I wanted to train someone like me. I was just in um, the right place at the right time. 
yeah, yeah. Who, who, you know, that we can just keep moving this forward instead of waiting for, you know, Mr. Nice Guy to <laughs> just take on his apprentice. And I mean, we have hundreds of men working in these granite sheds yeah. and no women. It's a great environment to learn in here. I'm just thankful. I hope you've enjoyed meeting Gopal and Isika, Kate and Jude, Heather and Wolf. Throughout the program cycle, which runs September 2020 to August 2021, VFC staff will be engaged in fieldwork to document the experiences of all the artists and apprentices involved in the Vermont Traditional Arts Apprenticeship Program during this extraordinary time. If you want to hear more about what these artists are up to, stay tuned to this podcast, to the Field Notes blog on our website, and to our social media channels. Find us at Vermont Folklife on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you visit our show notes at www.vtfolklife.org untapped, you can learn more about the history of VTAP and see a full list of all the projects being supported this year. This episode is one in our six-part Listening in Place series. As the events of 2020 continue to unfold, the Folklife Center's Listening in Place project is an effort to maintain and cultivate community, listen to others, and document our extraordinary daily lives together during the pandemic and beyond. If you'd like to learn more about making your own recordings or doing your own interviews within your family, household, or community, head to our website at www.vtfolklife.org listening to learn more. If you so choose, the recordings you make could be added to the VFC archive, allowing future Vermonters to revisit and learn from what we're going through now. This fall, we're offering several free virtual workshops via Zoom that introduce listening in place and its many activities, including one coming up on December 5th called Building Conversations for Civic Action. For more details, visit our website at www.vtfolklife.org workshops. From all of us here at the VFC, we hope you and your families are keeping as well as can be. We'll be sharing more stories from our Listening in Place project through this podcast and also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you liked listening to this show, please tell others to look us up and subscribe. You can find Vermont Untapped on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and TuneIn Radio. Vermont Untapped is produced by me, Mary Wesley. Abra Claussen was an assistant producer on this episode. Our executive producer, who also happens to be the VFC archivist, is Andy Kolobos. The cello music in this show was recorded by Dave Hoy. Thanks for listening.